0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8:55 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step 3 is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do.
1: Good evening, listeners, and salut, Babette. The winner of our quiz last week was Elizabeth Wilson, and thanks to her for her kind words. I'll be giving her the prize tonight. We'll have another quiz in a minute, but if you're free to go down to Melbourne University tonight, don't miss the Beyond Zero Emissions discussion group. Michael Lord will be speaking about electrifying industry. The address is 6 at 6.30 is the Chemistry Building, 153 Masson Road. I think it's Building 153 in Masson Road inside the university. Just, um, it's just inside after you get off the tram at the Melbourne Uni tram stop in Swanson Street. So this is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show and today there was a dramatic climate action up near Newcastle. A woman stopped the coal trains for three hours and she's part of the frontline action on coal. When she came down from her tripod, she said, this mining and exporting coal in the face of what's an already spiralling climate crisis is to condemn my generation and those to follow. So we'll speak to Sarah Barron from that group later in the show. Now, this Friday, the 7th of September and Saturday the 8th, there will be a global climate uprising and the idea is to put a quick end to emissions. We'll give more details and speak to Louise Fraser about it in the middle of the show. And at about 5.30, Giles Parkinson, editor of Renew Economy, will join us with his feet firmly on the ground where the wind farms and solar plants are edging out oil, coal and gas into the dustbin of history, I hope. But what will the renewable Energy... Industry do right now about the new government ministers who are both anti-wind and pro-coal. So now get ready for the quiz questions. Please write down this address: radio team at bzd.org.au. Now, the first question is where was the coal train stopped for 3 hours today on its way to newcastle Castle Port? I'll give It'll be in the interview, you'll hear the actual place where it stopped. Question two, which club does Ian Dunlop belong to? Okay, now to our first guest, Ian Dunlop. He is a very precious person to us as someone who knows the coal industry and the ways of corporations from the inside. Nowadays he speaks of the creeping cancer of the neoliberal agenda and he sees that a government whose thinking is formed by the Institute of Public Affairs and the Murdoch Media and whose policy is driven by the Minerals Council and the Business Council of Australia is unable to protect us from the climate disruptions we're creating. So welcome Ian. Could you tell the listeners how you moved from being part of the business elite to being its critic?
2: Good afternoon, Vivian. Well, I I joined the oil industry at the beginning of my career as an engineer, and I had the good fortune to get involved in a lot of long-term planning work very early on. And climate change was one of the issues that was being discussed uh, way back. It was something that was not seen as an immediate urgency, but... Sooner or later, I think there was a recognition that the uh, issue of climate change would be something the fossil fuel industry had to face up to, because the science is not new. I mean, we've known we've known about this for a long, long time. And over the years, um, gradually, the science has got clearer and clearer. The evidence has got uh, more and more obvious as we see climate impacts, as we see temperatures increase. And there comes a point where you obviously have to do something about it. You can't just sit and look at it any longer. And for me, that occurred, I guess, in the mid-80s. But um, we now had to move to a sort of major response to climate change. And I've been involved in doing that ever since.
1: Well, with the chaos in Canberra now, you said this government, in one of your articles, you said this government must go, and you called for something like a wartime government of national unity. How would such a government deal with those companies that are still exporting coal and gas and are set to get more gas from the Northern Territory and Western Australia plus more coal from the Galilee Basin?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you have to start from the view of how serious is the climate change problem. And in my view, it's far more serious than we're being told officially, either certainly by our own government, who basically I think our parliament generally is in almost complete denial that climate change is even an issue, never mind that it's serious. But even with the international bodies like the um, <clears throat> The IPCC the intergovernmental panel on climate change and the United Nations um, negotiating process the UNFCCC uh, we're not really being told the truth I mean the the impact the potential impact of climate change tends to be downplayed um, we're not really looking at the full extent of impact that may occur because the Organisations that are doing this work, IPCC and so on, tend not to want to rock the boat too much. And part of that's due to the pressure that's put on them by the fossil fuel industry and also by governments who um, are reluctant, not just the Australian government, but other governments too. They're reluctant to take the action that's required, which is going to be extremely serious and extensive. Um, and therefore, if you don't think the problem is so great then you tend to motor along assuming that somehow we'll find a sort of medium gradual path to make this change and it could be done over two or three four decades now the problem quite simply is that we don't have that luxury anymore it's already obvious from the impacts we're seeing around the world that things are moving far faster than we're being told officially if you look at What's been happening in the northern hemisphere over the last uh, few months where uh, events are occurring that nobody ever expected would occur you know um now it was thought that these things might start happening you know maybe 10 20 30 years hence um so you get to the point of saying well if this is really serious then how are you going to manage the problem because our government our parliament has demonstrated absolutely crystal clear in the last 20 years that it is incapable of actually coming to grips with this challenge. I mean, that's why we've had we've lost six prime ministers. We had the nonsense uh, the week before last, the most recent event, uh, and we now have another set of ministers running around, basically telling us a load of lies about the real issues and what we have to do to face up to them. We now have. Um, a severe drought around the country, as everybody knows. Um, Money's being sort of (coughs) provided to help the farmers get out of that. But we still have complete denial that the drought is influenced in any way by climate change. And it's patently obvious that climate change is not the only issue, but it is undoubtedly intensifying the events. Now, what we're getting to is that the country, this country is going to have to face up to the fact that it now has an emergency on its hands which has to be addressed in a completely different way from anything we've seen before it can't be done by conventional politics and when you get to emergency situations historically then you change the format in which politics operates you have to really put the economy on a war footing and it's not just here, it'll have to happen around the world, to make the sort of change we require in the short time that we now have available if we want to prevent the most catastrophic impacts getting locked in. And that's why I think that what we need is a, what I call a, a government of national unity, which, for example, happened in Britain um, before World War Two. finally, after a, a lot of messing around and refusal to face up to the problem. Finally, when you get to the point where it's so serious, then things change. And I think we're now at the point where that has to happen. And it's not just a question of merging the existing politicians. We need leaders. We need people who have genuine foresight, the preparedness to face up to the problem and can lead and frankly we don't see that in today's Australian Parliament on either side frankly certainly not in the minor parties
1: no do you think um, I'm coming back to the companies though because you know how companies work and how you know all the sort of laws that regulate them and that they they're governed by i mean in france for example they banned fracking and in, in states in australia have banned fracking and it seems like the federal government here will lean very heavily on those states that have banned the fracking in order to liberate more gas oh, i mean what what is there in that world of corporate um discussions that that can bring a bit of sense and leadership in there
2: well, I think if you look at the, the major corporate players in the fossil fuel industry and, and in the renewables industry, I mean, we, we are seeing companies acknowledge that climate risk is now a serious issue. The regulators are now getting very anxious about it because they can see this is going to lead to a bigger financial and economic crisis than, uh, for example, the uh, GFC in 2008. So companies are being um, pushed to disclose the climate risk they face so that investors can know what the implications are of uh, this. Um, directors of companies are being uh, now really have to face up to the fact they have to assess that risk and tell investors accordingly, even though um, a large number of the top-level directors in this country are still in denial themselves. They now have to do this. But the point, the point is that um, we are now at the stage where either companies start to take a genuine lead in moving far faster than we've seen, um, or we cannot solve this problem. I mean, it's not good enough any longer to say, look, fossil fuels are going to be here forever and a day. They're going to be as an essential part of the economy for you know, decades to come. I mean, you're not going to get rid of fossil fuels um, tomorrow morning but they are going to decline far faster than the industries are telling us, whether it's the oil industry, the coal industry, or the gas industry. Mm. And the, the the reality, quite simply, is that they don't. Then we are going to enter catastrophic territory, and we will be triggering uh, the so-called tipping points within the climate um, system, which become irreversible. It's the point where, uh, for example, we start to see um, major methane emissions coming out of the permafrost in the Arctic because of the warming that's going up there, which is moving much more quickly than people thought. You see uh, areas like the Amazon rainforest, um, instead of absorbing carbon, they start to emit it. Uh, they become a source rather than sink, as they call it. I mean, all these things are now, we're starting to see the beginnings of these irreversible tipping points, and that's the extremely dangerous position that scientists have been concerned about for for decades, frankly.
1: I think the connection between what we're doing here... Not just our own emissions, but our exported emissions is still not being made and I'll, look, I talk to people in lots of different sectors, people in disaster management, public health, defense, farming, and local councils are pretty much on the front line of this, and they all see the results of climate disruptions that are stretching their resources but it is as if someone else is fueling that heat wave and the drought and the bushfire. And I only had one speaker, a Bangladeshi climate scientist, who pointed out that our exported emissions are causing floods and disruption in Bangladesh. And he said you are climate criminals.
2: Yeah, well, that's, he's absolutely right. I mean, we hear continually from our politicians that Australia is such a small part of the problem that nothing we do would make any difference. And therefore, you know, the implication is that we should be entitled to keep on doing what we've been doing since the end of World War II, which is expand the fossil fuel industry. And the implication is the rest of the world needs to, uh, you know, get stuck into solving the problem. which has got nothing to do with us. That is utter nonsense. Um, Australia is relatively small in terms of its domestic emissions, 1.3%, although even that is the equivalent of many other countries or greater than. But if you add in exports, which you have to do, because it's the question is, what is the total impact that Australia is now making on the global climate change problem? It's not a question of what the convention says, which is, you know, the UN one that says that the only thing you have to account for is the amount you use domestically. We benefit by exporting a vast amount of fossil fuels and if you include our exports then we are the sixth largest carbon polluter in the world after basically China the US Russia and just behind Saudi Arabia <coughs> pardon me um, just behind Saudi Arabia basically and and the problem and India sorry and the the problem is that If we, what we do matters, I mean, Australia's uh, total emissions, including exports, are very substantial indeed, and it's it's basically completely irresponsible, and a crime, basically a crime against humanity, in my view, for us to sit here and say, well, we can keep expanding our exports. I mean, even today, what we've locked in, in terms of expansion of LNG exports, for example, is going to mean that within a year or two, we're going to become the fourth largest carbon polluter in the world. Now, if we do nothing, then why should anybody else do anything? And the point is that if if what we're faced with now is an existential risk, a risk which means that if we don't take action, we are going to lock in events which will lead to a significant reduction in the global population and indeed in the Australian population and completely disrupt our economy. I mean, you you can already see the issue starting to emerge with the drought, that parts of the Australian um, agriculture and farming community, economists are now starting to say, look, a lot of this may be in fact, marginal land that we should not any longer attempt to farm because the climate impact is going to destroy its productivity. and that's going to keep on going. Basically, that means that if we're in that position whereby continuing to increase exports, this is going to be the outcome, then you just cannot keep doing it. I mean, it is completely irresponsible to suggest that just because we have vast amounts of coal in the Galilee Basin and uh, and elsewhere in New South Wales that we are entitled to export it because we've always done it or because it's cheaper in theory uh, than renewables in the eyes of the government which is actually another complete nonsense
1: OK, well look, thank you Ian for saying that. I think that single fact that we are uh, the fourth largest polluter because of our exports that is something that listeners can take away and just to finish I'd like to, I would like leaders to appeal to me, to my altruism, to my strength to my capability, that's what wartime leaders do, appeal to people's absolute strengths and uh, belief in each other and I think many people want to take action on climate but they're disgusted by corruption at the top and you have noted rot in the banking and the corporate responsibility sector where you have had many trusted roles, I would like you to give now a message to them, just give them Message to the corporate sector about you know an altruistic message to them about what they could do. It could be their finest hour.
2: Well, it's got it's got to become, if you like, their finest hour because I mean, in a in a, in a straightforward self interest sense, if they don't start to move far faster than we're seeing, then they're not going to have a commu- uh, an economy in which they can do business. I mean, this is now very serious stuff. I mean, an existential risk is getting locked in today by virtue of the fact that we are continuing to expand the use of fossil fuels and what we know is that the climate system has a lag in it so whatever you do today you don't see the full effect of for another 10 or 20 or 30 years but you can't then reverse it so by continuing you know by building things like the Galilee Basin um, coal mines that are being discussed I and mean, not just the Dani but you know the others with Gina Reinhart and Clive Palmer and the whole crew, you are effectively locking in catastrophic outcomes that cannot be reversed. And that's what people in government do not understand or at least do not want to accept. And the same with the corporate sector. So the corporate players now have to start honestly facing up to the, the implications of climate risk. These are companies who have the resources to access the best possible scientific advice They have to do that. Their corporate governance fiduciary responsibilities require them to do it. But a lot of our directors, and I think unfortunately it's still the case, have been in climate denial and have not wanted to get involved in uh, really thinking about those issues because they know damn well at the moment they do, they have to act on it.
1: Okay, thank you so very much. The
2: regulators are l- now forcing them to do that.
1: Thank you, Ian. I'm sorry, we've run out of time and we've got a person um, coming up who w- w- stopped the coal trains today so you might like to stay listening. So that was Ian Dunlop, former International Oil, Gas and Coal Industry Executive, Chair of the Australian Coal Association, CEO of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and now co author of a new publication called what lies beneath and also a member of the club of rome so thank you very much ian now after a tiny break we're going to louise fraser from 350.org they're uh, g- uh, having a global event called rise for climate on saturday
3: you're listening to freeze 855 am the voice of the community <laughs>
1: Thanks very much, Andy. That's a funny one. Now, welcome, Louise. Are you there? Hello. Hi. Yes, I am. Look, first, tell us about why you have stepped up to take climate leadership. Uh, me personally? Or, yes. Or to, well, just very quickly, we've got a an ex, you know two, three more speakers. But, um, <laughs> well, for
0: me personally, it's it's a, um, as a parent, it's important to me to know that I'm doing all I can to. Leave the planet in a in a better way, and to show that my kids that we can fix the mistakes that we have
1: made, uh, and that's why I'm stepping up the climate. Well, this weekend's going to be a. You go, your kids are going to see people from all around the world rising up for climate, and I wonder what will their demands be. Those other global players, what will their demands be?
0: There's there's a, a kind of a unified message that people around the world are are sending, and that is that. People, ordinary people, the the average community members want action on climate change and we're sending a message to governments that the time is right, the science is clear, there is momentum and the technology for an energy transition away from fossil fuels is available now and we want that to happen.
1: Well, Australians will soon have a chance to vote either for a party that is transparently promoting coal and more gas, um, but if they want to transition to 100% renewables and zero emissions, how do you think they should pressure the other parties to stand up for them?
0: I think um, it's it's worth putting pressure on or, or putting your point forward to all sides, all political players. And I think that um, that's what part of what we'll be doing this weekend with the Rise for Climate action. Uh, There will be a rally uh, targeting Scott Morrison in his uh, electorate in Cronulla, where people are stepping up and saying, we want you to act on climate change. You know, the the coalition has no climate policy at all, as far as global warming, really. And we have to act now. People are, are urgently demanding it. So... The fact that you can go out and join an event in your community uh, is, I think, a strong signal. Politicians listen to to people who, you know, are active in the community, and um, I think if everybody gets involved, it does send a strong message by
1: all parties. Well, in Brisbane, the Pacific Islanders will be prominent in the rise for climate. Do you think that Australians are aware that the coal and gas we export, and we've just heard from Ian Dunlop, says that Australia is actually fourth now in the world polluters because we export all that coal and gas. Do you think most people are really aware that we're causing such trouble to other nations?
0: I think people need to be aware. You're right that they're probably not as aware as they could be of Australia's appalling international track record and the the fact that we are one of the biggest polluters of fossil fuels and um, greenhouse gas pollution should be something that everybody in Australia is concerned about. Um, And, you know, it's it's important that that people do realise that they can actually do something about it. Um, Putting pressure on government, standing up and and demanding clear action uh, is is a good way that people
1: can, can actually step up. Well, you've mentioned that some people will be gathering outside Scott Morrison's office in Cronulla. What about in Melbourne, um, Melbourne listeners? Where How can they get involved and what sort of events? Will it just be like a rally with speakers or what's going to happen?
0: Uh, in Melbourne there will be a rally. It's outside the State Library at 6 o'clock until 7.30 on Friday. So that's one of the first ones that that will happen In Australia on the the Friday night and then that goes into then um, other events as the weekend rolls out and um, there will be a number of different speakers and there will also be um, an art exhibition and installation opening on Saturday showing um, beautiful art from people in the Pacific and there will be a Talanoa, sorry, which is a a Pacific word meaning a a dialogue or a discussion and people can join in with that and participate, have their voice heard and hear the concerns of particularly people from Pacific Islands in Melbourne about what climate change is doing to their home.
1: Will that be at the State Library, that Talanoa? Uh,
0: The Talanoa is also that's at sorry, um Uh, 44
1: Wood Street, Laverton. Oh, so it's a bit out of town. All right. So Wood Street, Laverton. I think the website. Perhaps listeners should go to your website. What is it?
0: Yes. Um, uh, www.350.org.au. Yes. And there are a number of um, Facebook events as well uh, on our Facebook page, which is just uh, 350.org Australia, and you can find all the details about uh, the different events. Okay. Around the country,
3: All right.
1: Outside. And it's basically called Rise for Climate. And if you do join that, you know that people around the world, all around the world are being organised and organising themselves to to join with us. That's right. Thank you. So that was Louise Fraser from 350.org. She's part of this big global event. And I hope you uh, join that listeners. So now we're going to a speaker from Newcastle. Um, we've got Sarah... Um, Aaron from Frontline Action on Coal on the phone. She was part of a daring. Um, I think there's someone else with her, Tim Um, She was part of a daring climate action event At Sandgate Bridge It's near Newcastle And I got this message early this morning And I was so excited Because I've seen those coal trains Going back and forth for years And, you know, nothing seems to stop them Well, Sarah stopped them She climbed up on a tripod And they stopped the endless coal trains For three hours So welcome, Sarah Tell us what happened
3: Hi. Um, yeah, so this morning I stopped um, the coal train from entering and going out of um, Kurragang Island, uh, which is the coal terminal in Newcastle. Um, I stopped the train for three and a half hours.
1: Wow. Yeah. So what's Sandgate Bridge? Is that the entry, entry to Kurragang Island? Um, yeah,
3: I believe So one, one is the entry point no?
4: Yeah, yeah um, here. Yeah, it's, the, it's the main entry point to Kurigang Island Which is the largest part of the largest Coal port in the world um, oh, yeah. So in terms of climate action um, Newcastle is definitely the place to be
1: Well, I wanted Sarah to tell me Just while you were sitting up there on a tripod What were you thinking for three and a half hours? Was it frightening or exhilarating? What did you feel?
3: Yeah, um, it was totally a bit of both Um it, it was a really uh ultimately empowering thing to be a part of mm-hmm. and to be um you know supported by so many people from frontline action and call and Newcastle climate justice uprising was really awesome um the action doesn't just happen with mm-hmm. me and everyone's was really invaluable.
1: No, you have to train for something like that and make sure you'll be safe. But, were well, you just parked, it was the tripod just on the tracks? And I, I wonder how the police didn't just pull you down. Yeah,
3: so um, a train stopped um, on one of the tracks going into the salt foot and the tripod was set up on the uh, parallel track, which is where the trains would run out the on um, Holbrook mm-hmm. into the Hunter Valley,
1: and then did the police come along and, and shout at you, or what happened?
3: Um, yeah, so the police did um, turn up. Obviously, uh, they were they were reasonable. They were definitely reasonable. There was there was no shouting. Um, it was pretty cordial from my perspective. I think um.
4: that might be um, indicative of how, I guess, Black and Newcastle I Newcastle's mean, mm. uprising does non-violent direct action here in Newcastle. Um, I mean, we, we seek to sort of have situations and actions where everyone can get involved, arrestable, non-arrestable. So, I mean, I think the way the police behave today is really a testament to our behaviour um, and how we're peaceful um, and we, we run peaceful, non, non-violent direct action.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've, I've watched those coal wagons for years when I, I've had you know relatives up there and I go back and forth and I've, I went to a court case years ago for Rising Tide who locked onto the Port Waratah coal loader and, you know, it's been going on for years and I'm just so grateful to you to have done it because it, it just seems that they are, they're like a force of nature, those wagons. They just keep going and going and going. You can stand on a bridge and they never seem to stop coming and Newcastle is the world's biggest coal port and we've just heard and Dunlop tell us today that Australia is the fourth largest polluter, climate polluter because of our exports of coal and gas and I wondered why did you do it now? Is today a special point in time? Is it leading to elections or why now?
3: Um, I think that, I don't know at least for me I have very strong beliefs about climate change and the urgency to act. I don't like, like now is the time to act We don't really have That much time left Before we're in A climate crisis mm. um, Yeah I, if, if you have a belief I think it's really Important to act on it and I Really want to stress that You don't have to get arrested To fight climate change um, There are so many Other roles People can come and be a part of Um, It's a very inclusive
4: movement. And I guess today was uh, particularly important um, because it was also the launch of um, Frontline Action on Coal and Coal Campaign here in the Hunter and also nationally. So um, there's an event called Act Up Newcastle. Um, You can search that on Facebook. Um, It's coming up from the 12th to the 16th of September. If people want to get involved in that, share it. Um, tell their friends, share it through the network that would be a massive help. If you want to get here um, for that event in Newcastle definitely go to the Frontline Action on Polls website, Google that um, go to the registration page sign up um, come to Newcastle from the 12th to the 16th of September and really get involved in, in these sort of actions.
1: Well, just one last question. I, um, I think a lot of uh, Melbourne listeners won't be able to do that, but the podcast of this will go Australia-wide and, and there will be people in New South Wales who'll hear this and maybe can come up. But you want community control over resources, for example, in the Galilee Basin. I think you've been active in the, up there as well. How would that work, community control?
4: Um, I think, first of all, um, obviously we look at um, sort of models of energy control in these areas. I mean, we have these sort of big multinational companies who sort of go in, um, force communities out, buy up farms, um, you know, sort of um, split communities in half. Um, that's the sort of system that we have at the moment. I guess when we talk about solar, um, wind a little bit, but more solar, um, we start to look at decentralisation of power grids. I mean, that's, it sort of lends itself to decentralisation. Um so that's sort of how it starts to look like. If we look at sort of the German model, where there is like a big, um, you know, sort of government-funded solar energy grid over there, but also the community and councils buy into that sort of system. So it's sort of largely community-owned through um, ratepayers sort of funding um, and that sort of stuff. I mean, that's the sort of model that we're starting to look at. Like, what, like you know, just, just transitions is a hard sort of and very nuanced, Concept. Yeah. I guess when we start looking at decentralized models of power, um, we're talking um, economic, like we're talking um, politically, but we're also talking about um, solar, wind, community-owned, smaller power generation. Um,
1: yeah, that's really good. And there's so much in there. I think we'll have to come back to you later. Maybe when your court case comes up, did they, did they give you a? Are you going to have a court case? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let me know and we'll come back to you when that's happening and we'll talk more about this. So thank you very much. That was Sarah Barron and Tim who are from the Frontline Action on Coal and they said look up the website ACT UP Newcastle or Frontline Action on Coal and I hope you can get behind them, listeners. So thanks very much. Um, After a tiny break, we'll talk to Giles Parkinson.
4: Cyclone is pretty grim. Shocking. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5 pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5 pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally.
1: Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Giles Parkinson is the editor of the online journal Renew Economy, which is a key player in informing us about the inevitable energy revolution. So, welcome, Giles. Thanks, Vivian. Look, we've got a new prime minister who looks like a front man for the Minerals Council, a chief chief of staff who's the former coal industry boss, an energy minister who's an anti who was an anti wind campaigner, and the environment minister apparently was a mining industry lawyer. So, shades of Trump. How are people in the wind and solar industries reacting to this? Oh,
5: with disbelief, mostly. Um, yeah, this is so frustrating. So we thought we got over all this sort of nonsense. Mm. Um, but um, here we are, in sort of 10 years on down the track, it's, uh, it seems like we've just sort of made another two-step backwards. As you say, I mean, Scott Morrison, he was the man that went into the House of Parliament waving a lump of coal in February last year. Um, an extraordinary thing for a politician to do, particularly a treasurer. Uh, he chief started to form the former deputy chief executive of the Minerals Council of Australia. That just continues the merry-go-round between Government advisors and Mineral Council of Australia. Um, People, in fact, you know, Malcolm Turnbull, Senior Policy Advisor on uh, Climate and Energy, was the former Policy Advisor for the Minerals Council of Australia. Greg Hunt, former Policy Advisor on Environment, is now the Policy Advisor for the Minerals Council of Australia. And it's all just this horrible merry go round. And as you say, Angus Taylor, um, you described him as an opponent of wind farms. um, And I would actually probably say he still is. He (laughs) gave an extraordinary speech. Well, he gave an extraordinary speech last week, oh. his first speech as energy minister, and he mentioned about all the different energy resources in Australia, and deliberately um, on two or three occasions that he mentioned all these other resources, solar, um, hydropower, coal, gas, geothermal, or whatever. He, d- he made no mention of wind energy. I mean, it's, sort of, you know, it's, oh. it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, it's so
1: petty. And I wonder if the industries are now going to say, oh, well, take fright, take my baton and ball and go to another country.
5: Well, that's exactly what they will do um, if nothing improves. Look, for the moment, they've got an awful lot to do. because They're still building stuff for the Renewable Energy Target, um, and so there's still about 5,000 megawatts of large-scale wind and solar to be completed over the next year or two to meet that target. Um, plus, you've got the Victorian uh, Renewable Energy Target, um, which is to be next, plus the initiatives in Queensland. So there's stuff to do. But I think if this time next year, after the election, we, and we have a new government, that isn't actually starting to lay out a plan for how it wants to manage this transition rather than just erecting roadblocks. And I think some people are going to get sick and tired of it and pick up the bat and ball. There's been a lot of big international companies coming to Australia bringing not just expertise, but also capital equipment, cranes and other forms of investment and doing some sort of manufacturing in Australia because they actually believe Australia is a wonderfully exciting place to, to lead this energy transition uh, because of our wonderful resources, our typical know-how, and we have a great incentive to do it because we've got really high electricity prices. So what do you do? Well, go for the cheapest option. That's got to be wind and solar and various forms of storage. So mm. it's really an exciting place to be. Um, but if we scuff it up, then um, other other places are going to be just as exciting.
1: Well, you wrote an interesting article about intermittency versus baseload. And you said it's a, it's a, you know, politicians just simplify this. And it's um, a very complex matter but um, i wonder if we're actually having trouble integrating new decentralized wind and solar power into the grid that was designed for centralized coal-fired power is that at the bottom of all of this that they can say oh don't don't trust all these renewables they're unreliable intimate they can play that up i know they're playing it up because they're they're satisfying the agenda of the the old fossil fuel incumbents, but is there also a kind of a doubt about whether our grid can smoothly integrate these new forms of power?
5: Well, It kind of is, but in a really perverse way. Look, um, integrating wind and solar does have some technical issues, but they're not, you know, they're not insurmountable and they're not really that complicated. I mean, you do have to manage that transition. You've got to make sure you don't have, you know, oil and wind farms just in one area trying to sort of fight for one connection and things like that. And, you know, just, just the way that you plan the operations of the grid has got to be changed. Well, the other guy I wrote last week just pointed out that it's really not the new technologies that, that are posing the biggest problem. Problems. It's the old technologies because we because we've sort of designed this market to sort of be in the image of the old fossil fuel generators, and we've kind of designed for them to sort of you know, uh, extract the maximum value out of it. It's these plants, which, by the way, are. Uh, Aging and they're getting old and they're getting less reliable. They're the biggest problems at the moment. So it's not the new technologies because they're new, they're smart, they've got vertebrates technologies. I guess the old one is a bit like sort of saying, as we moved, you know, through the various stages of the internet, you get your new sort of, you know, 3G and 4G. Mm This was saying, oh, geez, we can't have this 3G or 4G because I'm a bit worried about what it will do for my dial-up speeds. Um, so (laughs) it's sort of, yeah. you've got problems with your aging, aging technology um, and you're blaming the new technology we're well, not, it's a transition you've got to manage that transition don't blame the new technology, just make sure that the old technology is working as well as it can be um, while you're making this transition yeah. don't stop the transition just for the sake of a clunky old bit of machinery
1: Because I was thinking in terms of elections this is going to be trotted out, isn't it? The um, myth that you said that renew- renewable energy is intermittent and unreliable, they will trot that out and I think listeners who are a bit informed, need to have something better to say and a bit of, I know there'll be electorates where that just works wonderfully but I think most people listening to this program need to have a bit of solid knowledge behind them.
5: Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, 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 look, I think most people instinctively understand that renewables work and they can work within the grid, but when they hear so much disinformation, they start to question that belief and that judgment and go, oh, well, maybe, it's this, maybe it is maybe too hard, maybe, maybe, maybe it isn't. But, look, you know, I, I, I guess the most important thing to look at is um, there's been two or three fundamental, really important studies done over the last couple of years. The first one was done by the CSILO in conjunction with the network owners of Australia, and they talked about a decentralized, sorry, of decab, Grid um, by 2050, largely decentralized, as the previous speaker was talking about, with local wind, local solar, battery storage, and what have you. And that would actually save $100 billion between now and 2050. And it's a system that can work perfectly well. And this is the networks who are saying this, and to the CSIRO is saying this. Thank you. That's what I want report, to okay? And that's
1: what I want yeah, the listeners absolutely. to hear. Yeah.
5: That's exactly right. And then the second, the, the other major report, which is important for your listeners to, to, to know about, is the Australian Energy Market Operator. Now, their responsibility is to keep the lights on. And they've just laid out a 20 year blueprint for, you know, the the first major part of this transition. It's called the Integrated System Plan, and in that they talk about business as usual taking us to a renewable share of 46% by 2030, and that's just in recognition of announced policy. So, you've got the Renewable Energy Target plus Victoria plus the ACT plus the Queensland Target, and they say, well, that will take us with all the big uptake of of rooftop solar to 46% by 2050. Now, they see absolutely no problem with that, but, you know, sure, the transition's got to be Manage, there's a few things we need to do, upgrade a few links here, put in a bit of storage there, you know, no issue. But this is the same target that some of the federal politicians are telling you is reckless, is unworkable, is crazy, is nuts, was going to cause the lights to go out. Well, that's just nonsense. Mm. Even better than that. AEMO, you know, the market operator, also model what the Labour Party has um, proposed, which is a 45% reduction in emissions, and they see this as translating into a 60% share of renewables by 2030. Once again, they actually see no problem with it. You know, They say, sure, it's got to be management that needs to do this, that, and the other thing, but really, no big problem. And they talk about an 80% to 90% share of renewables you know, by 2040, 2050. twenty forty, twenty fifty. They're even talking about, you know, we hear a lot of things about South Australia. Oh, well, the lights have gone out. Well, yes, the lights went out when there was a big tornado knocked down six, um, Mm. 23 transmission lines and six Mm. major towers. Nothing much has happened since then. And the share of renewables in South Australia is well over 50%. It's about 55% now. The market operator says it will be at 73% by 2020 and will likely be the equivalent of 100% by 2025. Again... They see no problem with this, no issues at all, we need to do this, that and the other thing, just to make sure that everything is in place, Um, but they just don't see any problem with that. And they see coal completely gone, they see the share of gas contributing really a very small amount of the overall um, electricity in South Australia, and the rest to be provided by battery storage, solar thermal, pumped hydro, and of course wind and solar, which they say, is by far the cheapest form of bulk generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are the people who own the grids and who operate the grids who are giving us this information. It's not just political bollocks coming out of Canberra for ideological purposes. Um, Yeah, you
1: know, these are serious people talking about a serious transition. Okay. Now, Giles, your newsletter, the Renew Renew Economy Online Journal, you often do overseas stories, and I like those overseas stories because it gives me a bit of heart about what other people are doing. But here, the main problem, I think, is not just our emissions here. It's our exported emissions, and we just had Ian Dunlop saying, look, we are the fourth largest polluter in the world because of our Um, uh, exported coal and gas even though we're only 25 million people here and popular resistance to exported coal and fracked gas is firming up we just heard from a group who stopped the coal trains this morning for three hours and i think people are horrified by the three degrees of warming path that we're on and it is important to make any more exports unthinkable but how to make it unthinkable when people are making profits and i want to know what's the alternative for business could we uh, we have talked before about exported solar. Would you like, is that the way you see them making money? Or, um, or exported wind energy to Indonesia, for example, or green steel from Wayala. What, what's the way forward for the lucrative export trade?
5: well those three things that you mentioned um, exporting wind and solar energy from the Pilbara through a subsea cable is proposed by CWP renewables an extraordinary big project um, there we get to see whether that will actually get to go ahead and as you said the green steel being done by Nwayala and Sanji Kukta um, who sort of talks about solarising the Australian economy because he acknowledges that solar is by far the cheapest form of um, electricity but it's really interesting to see um, there's been a you know, whole bunch of reports come out in the last three weeks one from the CSIRO, one from the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, and one from the Chief Scientist, Anne Dinkel, all pointing to the wonderful opportunities in having what's called renewable hydrogen uh, and exporting gas exported this. Now this could be worth tens and tens and tens of billion dollars a year, basically having using Australia's rich resources in wind and solar energy, using that power to create hydrogen and a transportable form of hydrogen, which could be ammonia or it could be another, um, another form, and actually pretty much replacing our energy industry with renewable hydrogen. Now, You've got markets like Korea and Japan and other parts of East Asia, China even, um, Vietnam and, and other places, which are hungry for cheap and green electricity. They would rather not have to take the LNG, the liquefied natural gas that we're currently delivering. Not one because it's expensive, two because it's really dirty. And it certainly is dirty with the time you sort of, you know, piped it here, you compressed it, you tapped it on a ship, you transported it. and then you do something at the other end to actually put them into the generator. So, you know, this this, this cheap green hydrogen could be a fantastic opportunity for Australia. And and, and you've got the CSIRO, you've got the chief scientist Alan King, oh, you've got Arena talking about it. In the past, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation in Los have talked about it. So that's really starting to to um sort of generate some interest now. And um thankfully Um, the last COAG Energy Minister's meeting, which is all the states now, they were wrangling over the National Energy Guarantee, which is obviously going to go nowhere now. Mm. But they also got this report from Alan Finkel and they were quite excited about it, so they asked him to come up with a bit of a roadmap. and, okay, how do we take advantage of this opportunity? Now, look, this is a 10 to 15-year plan, but, you know, we're not going to suddenly get rid of the energy industry, but we need to have a plan to replace it. So... um, This is the way to go, and I think people are going to accept that and um, hopefully they'll embrace it and um, and push forward to doing it because it's such an exciting opportunity.
1: Thank you, Giles. Well, look, we've got no climate policy at the moment as far as I can see. The NEG has gone the way of all the other acronyms, and the RET is running out. What do you think we need in the way of policy?
5: Just a bit of a reality check, really. One is to just recognise that wind and solar are the cheapest forms of generation and we should be making this transition because, look, you know, our our coal plants are aging. Even if we had nothing else than just just a plan to replace the coal plants which have to retire over the next 20 years, and that will almost be enough, rather than having this fantasy about building new coal plants and trying to extend the life of these you know, old clunkers. Um, we've really got to be serious about climate policy, and I think once we're serious about climate policy and we're starting to see the impacts now, they're becoming every more visible, um, ever more obvious. We've really got to start embracing that, and that would accelerate the uptake um, it will give a plan let's have emissions reduction um, of forty five percent or fifty percent by 2030 if not more and see what we need to do to meet that and the great thing is we now know that by uh, with wind and solar what we need is a plan and we need targets we don't necessarily need very much if anything at all in the way of ongoing subsidies in fact yeah, you know, people keep on. I mean, and on the ABC, I hear it all the time. You get these coalition ministers talking about three billion dollars of subsidies a year, and none of the ABC presenters challenge them. I mean, it's absolute bollocks. We're seeing so many of these new projects being built, and the contracts that are signed to build them have have either negligible or zero value on the subsidies because they're not needed anymore. But what is needed is an incentive for people to build them and and a target. Which which causes them to be built. You don't actually need, need that much more, um, if anything, in, in the form of extra payment. So that's mm. where the cost of solar and wind has become, and that's what made, should make people really quite relaxed about having, you know, doing something about climate. Pal- pal- Um, about climate change. We need to meet those Paris Paris climate goals. There is an understanding now that the cost of doing so is much reduced. So all that economic, you know, this economic ruin argument uh, should be thrown out the window because if we don't act on climate change, then we are going to be not just an environmental but also economic ruin. And that's that's just a silly way to go forward.
1: Yeah. Well, just before I let you go, Giles, I noticed the Clean Energy Council is going to take guided tours on wind farms in many states, and I'll announce this later. I might interview somebody on it, but I think it would be great if we send some of those ABC journalists on a wind farm tour and they could have someone like you explaining to them all the wonderful future of it and and how it will work. So that they won't, as I'm very frustrated by the media too, they seem to just always put blocks in the way. They don't see it, as you do, as an inevitable and manageable and totally positive thing.
5: Yeah, what's really frightening is that half the media, more than half the media, is the Murdoch media, is just openly hostile or whatever reason I don't understand. Um, I guess the ABC presenters, to be fair to them, I mean, many of them are really, really good journalists. I guess they just don't know enough about this sector Um, to really challenge the ministers but I kind of think that this is actually really important It is and maybe they should be informing themselves a bit better This issue of subsidies really isn't that hard to grasp No There's a renewable energy target It is a target This idea of $3 billion of subsidies it's just been generated by the Minerals Council and the Murdoch Media Mm. and the ABC and the other media should be doing a much better job of challenging people who repeat such nonsense Mm.
1: So, Thank you very much, Joel for sharing your um, enthusiasm with us again. I know our listeners will love that and I hope that they uh, subscribe to your, your um, online journal. It's called Renew Economy. So that was Giles Parkinson. So did you want to advertise it, Giles, to us?
2: Oh, I just wanted to just sort
5: of just point out that it's reneweconomy.com.au for people oh, yes. sort of, yes. um, wanting to help. And I'd just also like to say that we've actually just launched um, just a couple of days ago a new website to just focus only on electric vehicles. And I think there's a lot of interest out there amongst the oh, consumers. Oh, good, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people sort of say, oh, my next car's going an electric vehicle. Well, we've just launched a website which just sort of takes people through all that, gives them the news and some of the frequently asked questions. What's it and called? And, stuff. and that's called... It's called thedriven.io. So thedriven.io. Um, you can find it via Renew New Economy, but you can yep. find it also there. And um, I hope people enjoy it and um, find it really useful.
1: Thanks very much. So goodbye, Giles. And now we're just going Thanks. to have a tiny bit of music and then we'll uh, do the uh, outro. <laughs> the beyond zero emissions community show i hope most listeners will take action even if it's only sending in the answers to our quiz Uh, you send that to radio team at bze.org.au and the questions were where were the coal trains stopped today for three hours by frontline action on coal and number two what club does ian dunlop belong to if you can't remember you can listen to the podcast tomorrow um, or you can listen to it tonight on 3cr just look beyond zero emissions tonight the beyond zero discussion group is on electrifying industry it's at 6 30 in the chemistry building in melbourne university just near the tram stop that leads to melbourne university uh, this Friday the 7th of September there's an event called Rise for Climate at 6pm on the steps of the State Library organised by 350.org and others. Next week, Tuesday the 11th and Wednesday the 12th at Northcote Town Hall. I won't be here but I would love to go to this. I hope some of you will go. It's called Climate Emergency Conference and there are speakers there from GetUp, BZD will be there and there's something about uh, digital activism which I think a lot of of us could get better at, and uh, it'll be very practical. They're really getting serious about the climate emergency. You can contact darabin Council on eight four seven, oh eight, eight 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 for details. So that's been a pretty intense session, hasn't it? And I'd like to thank our guests not only for talking to our huge audience on the radio but for stepping up in public life whether it's sitting on a tripod above the coal wagons or writing fiery articles in the media or just cooperating and being patient with all sorts of people you know when you do all this teamwork you have to be very cooperative and um I think that that's part of it. Just making cohesive teamwork, believing that that we will we will succeed. But as in Dunlop said, the tone of this show, it's if you succeed slowly, you fail, and uh, we need to work together. I hope all the integrity and imaginative power of those people we heard tonight will flow over to you, the listeners. I'd like to thank the radio team also, Andy Britt, Britt, who's the producer, uh, Roger Vise does the podcast, and my name is Vivian Langford. Tune in next week at 5pm for the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show at 3CR. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.